episode 79 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 23rd of December 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. And here we are, post-election, nearly at the end of the decade, and things are looking rather dystopian. (laughs) 0.3% GDP for the last decade in the UK. Uh, just, uh, I just, I really despair with it all. But uh, this episode, we're going to do a 2019 news review. We're going to go back through what happened this year. And quite a lot has happened, so we should probably get straight on with it then. So in January and February, the real story seemed to be sort of FOSS versus the cloud providers, specifically Amazon. And you had MongoDB changing their license and then being removed from distros and Amazon launching their own compatible document DB and Redis Labs changed the license of Redis and there was just this big hoo-ha at the time. And it doesn't seem to have been fixed and I feel like we're going to have a bit more of it over the coming year. Outside of this specific story, I don't think it's a problem that can be easily fixed. Um, It's an open source kind of, of... free software kind of problem where people see their software being used and people potentially making lots of money out of it and the the originators and the people who are perhaps responding to a lot of bug fixes and being asked to do things within their open source project start to look at alternatives um i mean it's come up a few times this year and this was just the start of it so i think as long as that keeps happening we'll keep seeing stories like this what's the solution to it Personally, I think it, it, it's really people really going into open source, source with open eyes and fully understanding that this is what's going to happen and likely to happen if your product is successful and you work on a cloud database. Yeah, I don't think that the open source software developers themselves can do much about it. Like the rights that are in the GPL, for example, um, are not uh, are not going to be able to protect you from this sort of thing. I think that it needs the cloud vendors to agree amongst themselves that they're not going to be competing directly with the software that is running directly on their clouds. Um, and I, you know, they're not going to do that, are they? Because there's money to be made. And if you take the likes of Amazon, they even do with standard shops as well, anyway. So uh, mm. you know, there's a lot of stories where market sellers end up being actually compete against by Amazon themselves. So if they're not going to protect those either, then yeah, there's no hope for it. The solution is just run everything on-premises, eh, Phelan? It is. <laughs> I think Phelan may be right. <laughs> I am. <laughs> That's why I'm the self-made billionaire that I am. <laughs> Trace gummers. <laughs> is that why you're going to finally learn about the cloud? Are you going to finally learn about AWS and stuff? Well, I, I have the training now that you fucking brainwash me with four lights to uh, <laughs> actually buy so uh, ironically I bought it for all the non-cloud based stuff but I might do a few of them for a laugh if I'm bored yeah I'll tell you it's not going to be long before your customers are demanding frankly that's the kind of customer I can do without <laughs> <laughs> well once Brexit happens and Ireland is totally fucked you won't have much choice you'll uh, have to get what you're given not at all <laughs> All right, well, moving on into March then, um, Google launched, well, or at least announced its game streaming service called Stadia, which was all running Linux on the back end and was supposedly going to be the next big thing in gaming. Well, fast forward to recently and it launched to 
not a great reception, it seems. There's been all kinds of problems, hasn't there? Initially, the problem was with latency, with the reviews. And I've read recently that they're not even running modern games on on the highest kind of quality standards. Um, You've got the problem with Google kind of dropping its projects, the fact that you you have to buy the game and then you get the privilege of streaming it with your subscription. That's the worst part. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, it's a weird one, this. The AAA games that were being promised haven't yet materialised, and it is still relatively early days, but from what I remember, there were sort of one or two of the, the real killer games uh, available, not the massive suite that, um, that they promised. I did see a video that somebody had done reviewing the, the relative performance of Stadia versus um, a local game, and... They said the latency wasn't that bad. I just can't believe how it's possible for it not to be that bad, especially when you get up to 1080 or, or even more than that. It's uh, It just seems to go against the natural order of things. Yes, especially in England where, you know, data is carried by messenger pigeon. Mm. <laughs> and uh, fundamentally, I just believe that the the people who are out there buying games don't want google to be in charge of the games that they've got i think they want to own them they want to play them locally we'll see and i think something we didn't mention but modding modding is a huge part of the gaming community Mm. um and it you know it is in fact the main reason why people use a lot of different kinds of games gary's mod is a good example but Mm. it happens on everything and where does that fit fit into the stadia ecosystem well correct me if i'm wrong but isn't modding only like a pc gaming thing rather than consoles and isn't stadia aimed at the console market yeah you're right i mean fun it, yeah principally it is a pc thing although certain kind of bethesda get titles inherit some of the modding improvements made on the pc but yeah it's harder on a console remember the whole point of this is you can play on your phone or just in a chrome browser or whatever this is yeah, not yeah aimed at hardcore gamers this is for filthy casuals yeah well it's triple a titles though you can't have AAA titles and then casual gamers. I don't. I can't really see that. It's the wrong positioning for it. Surely, mm, that's a good point. Well, we'll see how long it hangs around for. Anyway, before they shit can it. No doubt. There's a, a stadia, is stadia dead yet dot com or something. Is there? <laughs> yeah. There will be in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, all right. So also in March, the LVFS project joined the Linux Foundation. And throughout the year, quite a few different companies joined LVFS and implemented FWPD. It really seems to have been the year of that project to me. Thanks to Microsoft forcing um, the Windows 10 sticker requirement to have a UEFI update capsule as the format for the, well, essentially the BIOS updates to motherboards and stuff that he uh, allowed the FWPD project to sit on top of that and then use that as a good way to get a standard update for motherboards and, and laptops, etc. I'm too scared to update my motherboard BIOS. I did it once, I think, and then now I just know it's working fine. I really probably should <laughs> update it because there's probably been three or four updates since I did the last one. But Yeah, especially with your dodgy Intel chip that you have. <laughs> I think LVFS is really useful when it comes to um, firmware updates in things like keyboard controllers where you know without the firmware update your keyboards uh, keystrokes are completely unencrypted um, so if you have hardware like that and you're being prompted to upgrade the firmware i think you should do it if it's a bios then i think you're right joe i think you should play a little bit more caution and just recently 
Husey said that it looks like Chromebooks are going to be required to support LVFS. And so he's trying to sort of put some process in place for all these various OEMs to deal with him. And he calls himself a grumpy developer. It it feels like going into 2020, it's going to kind of get its ducks in a row as a project and become pretty serious. Yeah, and there is also, uh, he has an idea for a project where an enterprise will be able to roll out uh, packages across the entire suite that they have, which would be interesting to see how he tries to accomplish it. But, you know, I'm, he's a smart guy, so I'm sure he'll come up with something very good. But that's a huge area where if you've got thousands of workstations that you need to update biases on, you're not going to go around with a single USB stick and start doing each one piece by piece. So, yeah, fair play if you can pull that one off. Yeah, it's not the most exciting bit of open source, but I think it is a very, very important piece of it. Automating shite like that is exciting because then you never have to fucking deal with it ever again. <laughs> true, true. Well, moving on to April then, and the UbiPorts project finally created their foundation. That's to deal with a lot of German bureaucracy and it took an awfully long time to happen. But now they've got this foundation, their finances are sorted and we've seen good stuff from them all year, I think. Thankfully, the money is no longer just resting in their account, and uh, <laughs> they might actually have a, a good OS ready for the Pine phone when I get mine that I'm... Yeah, okay, I haven't even ordered it yet, but I want one, so make it so. <laughs> well, I'm going to be the guinea pig for that, so hopefully I'm going to get that in early January, or at some point in January anyway, and I can report back on it. And, and see where UbiPorts is, where Ubuntu touches, because it's been a while since I have actively used it. They've been in a kind of refinement stage, I think. They're getting it to a point where it's daily drivable, if that's a phrase. It is not. Uh, it is now. I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I do wish them good luck, and, and we'll have to see what happens with the Pine phone and potentially some other devices this year. I, th- I think since you say you depend on your phone so much, we need to set you a challenge to use the Pine phone with UB ports for two weeks. As long as I can get a decent RSS reader, I think I should be all right. And as long as the browser is up to snuff. So we'll see how that works out. So also in April, Ubuntu 19.04 was released. And I think the big story there was performance improvements because that, along with 1910 as well, was the big thing. You inherited this GNOME situation and really worked your asses off to make it better. Yeah, that's right. Certainly, we noticed some of the performance, um, uh, let's say, drawbacks from Unity 7 um, and focused very clearly on getting those fixed in association with the upstream GNOME community. Um, and yeah, and then we took that further forwards to um, to E in... Um, October, but yeah, that was certainly the the primary goal for for 1904 was spit and polish on top of 1810. And how receptive were upstream then? Presumably, there must have been a bit of um, friction there. All of a sudden, you come along and start demanding all these changes. I think that people were naturally a little bit cautious, uh, having sort of had this relationship with Canonical in the past. Um, 
which yeah didn't really go well in in anybody's books uh they were a little bit cautious about us coming along again and perhaps trying to stamp all over uh the work that they were doing but we i think we learned from our mistakes the first time around and were much more open about the the way we were doing things the reasons we wanted to do them and made a real effort, a real concerted effort to be open about our contributions to GNOME and to make sure that we took a GNOME-first, upstream-first approach wherever that was possible. Um, and that, I think, has paid dividends. I think the relationship is uh, is better than it was before. Yeah, and Fedora has improved as a result of it as well. Those upstream changes have benefited both distros and, indeed, other distros that use GNOME. And that was kind of the hope. I remember when Shuttleworth dropped the bombshell that Unity 8 was no more and that you were moving over to GNOME, we all kind of hoped that it would mean the Ubuntu team working on GNOME and upstreaming as much as possible. And it sort of has panned out, which is pretty cool, really. Yeah, it, it really has. Um, the the GNOME developer community is still a relatively small number of people. And so I think that by bringing the uh, Ubuntu developers into that community, we were able to make a measurable impact and a measurable improvement. And I think that that has continued. And hopefully we've sort of shown the way to other people who were thinking about it. Uh, and maybe we've attracted some more uh, developers. I say we, they have attracted some more developers. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offer VMs or droplets as they call them with full root access in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and super fast SSDs. You can use distros like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS and FreeBSD or container distros like CoreOS and Fedora Atomic or you can upload your own custom image. You can either start with one of those distros or you can just go for a one-click app like WordPress or Discourse or GitLab and everything's set up for you out of the box. These droplets start from as little as $5 a month and they have very straightforward pricing that scales with the resources that you want to use. They also have CPU-optimized droplets and memory-optimized droplets so you can set up exactly the system that you need. They have great backups and the cloud firewall feature means that you can block traffic before it even gets to your droplet. You can attach block storage or object storage to your droplet, which is very straightforward. And they even have managed Kubernetes if containers is more your thing. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. All right, moving on into May then. And Windows Subsystem for Linux 2, WSL2, was announced. And this was a big change. Rather than a kind of wine-like translation layer, compatibility layer, this was an actual Linux kernel running in a VM, essentially. So this was proper Linux within Windows. And my understanding is that not many people have actually got it yet. You have to kind of be on beta tracks or whatever, but it's going to be standard soon, I think. I don't know. I, I, I struggle to care too much about it, but I feel that we really ought to care a little bit more about it. I think it will become the most common way of interacting with Linux in the world. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe not. But um, certainly on the desktop, this will become the, the most common interaction for sure. Um, 
Do we need to care? Do Linux enthusiasts need to care? I think we should do because we are opening up the door to, um, I don't know, hundreds of millions of, of new users um, who will be able to open a terminal and start messing around with all the sorts of tools that we come to take for granted. Um, so I think it will become a big deal. I think it will expose probably the server side of Linux more so than the desktop side of, of things. But yeah, after that, then perhaps people will be a bit more willing and a bit more interested in trying out Linux on the desktop. This is probably my biggest story of the year and in terms of its significance, you know, mirroring uh, what Will said. I think it's, if you stand back, it's remarkable that Microsoft is shipping the Linux kernel in one of its, you know, in its mainstream product. Um, and of course, there's going to be accusations that it's, you know, subverting Linux and embedding it and, you know, bringing people over to Windows and embedding all the Linux advantages within its own operating system. But fundamentally, I, you know, I've always been about more people will be using Linux, they'll be experiencing Linux from a Windows desktop, and that's a good thing. Um, and for so many reasons, it represents a big um, change of, it's a representation of what's happened at Microsoft and also what's happened with Linux. Because um, Linux, containerization is driving Microsoft having to do this as a necessity to be able to keep up. Um, and that's the power of open source. I suspect you're somewhat more skeptical, Phelan. Mm, yeah, maybe. I, I, I await the flood of patches from all the Windows heads going, oh, why is it case sensitive? <laughs> I, I don't use it. And when I did have to work on site at a client, I used a VM on that box. So I guess in theory, you know, past me would have had been happy to be able to use something like this but uh i don't know whether i believe the concept where people using this are then gonna think oh maybe i could use the real thing and then try that out I, yeah it'd be great if they did but i'm not sure but isn't the real thing that vm on azure or aws that they're ssh into sure but they are using a, a windows workstation which they could in theory and in reality use a linux one for because if all their dev tools that makes the company money sit there in you know windows land or sorry in linux land bar logging onto the domain with active directory then i don't really see why they're using a windows machine in the first place but maybe that's just me but I don't buy this argument that it's going to prevent people from moving to Linux because they just wouldn't have gone there anyway. Well, they would have had to have done something to get their dev environments up and running. So they would have been using something like Sigwin or VirtualBox or whatever. Um, and I don't think this particularly helps us, but maybe I'm totally wrong. Like, I'm just being cynical. I don't know. I've got a bit of Joeitis. I think Sigwin has done more to damage the relationship of Windows users with Linux than anything else in the world. It's a better bash prompt than using fucking putty. <laughs> fucking putty and its shitty SSH management. I fucking hate it. I do think, though, maybe I don't want to drag on this conversation too long, but and, and Phelan will know better than I, but I feel like there's a whole world out there of people using Windows every day for their proprietary stuff that we just don't even know about because we've been trapped in this bubble for so long. And anything that kind of encroaches on their awareness that there might be another way of doing something is a good thing. Yeah, that's fair enough, I suppose. Stop being so <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> I'm so pessimistic, I've forgotten what the word optimistic is. I'm lying in the gutter, but I'm looking at the stars. Oh. 
I'll send you a few euros, Graham. <laughs> you can <laughs> stitch them into a blanket. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm thinking of becoming a Tory. Fuck you all. <laughs> Moving on into June then, the Raspberry Pi 4 was released and this was a serious step up because since the 2 and 3, they, they were kind of faster, they were iterative, whereas the 4 is a new system on a chip, you can get 4 gigabytes of RAM. It's the real deal. This is the first Pi that is seriously powerful, I think, and can run a desktop to the point where you can actually use it to get stuff done. And cook your breakfast on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's the first Pi that needs active cooling, I think. And even with the various firmware updates and stuff, I've got my little fan case, and it works perfectly well. It has a horrible fucking whine to it, but you just stick some headphones on and uh, you know tune it out. But um, the Phantom, you haven't got a four yet, have you? No. Uh, yeah, I would love one, but I realistically don't need one. Um, but yeah, I did... Quite honestly, the thing I get it for is network speed because to get proper gig Ethernet off the thing would be fantastic for, especially if you have a a hard drive at the far end of it or something like that, where you just want to have something out in the shed in case the house goes up or something. I don't know. Yeah, but Will, you bought one recently, didn't you? I did. Um, I avoided it at the start because, well, for similar reasons to Phelan, I just didn't feel like I needed one. Like the extra horsepower wasn't necessary in the sorts of jobs that I was running on a Pi. But then I wanted to play with ARM64 a little bit more um, and try some ARM64 binaries. Um, And so, yeah, the Pi 4 with Ubuntu on it seemed like a a logical choice. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's a great piece of hardware, but, you know, I'm not really stressing what it can do. Um, And I'd be interested to know what sort of uptake Raspberry Pi saw on the 4, especially at the higher end, because by the time you've added the SD card and the special cables and, you know, the, the official power supply, you know, it's nearly a hundred quid for one of these things. Um, I just have to believe that most people are happy with a 3, that a 3 does most things for them, um, and they probably don't really have any use cases left for a 4, but I don't know, maybe I'm just not getting it. I think you might be right, because the 3 is powerful enough for almost anything headless, unless you want to start running a load of containers on it or something, if you want to multitask, essentially. If you're only looking to use each Pi for one particular network service or whatever. Like, I've heard of people using a Pi 4 to run Pi Hole. I mean, that is fucking ridiculous. Mm. You can do that on a zero. So... I think it only really makes sense if you're going to try and use it as some sort of desktop, but then mm, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense, or you're going to run multiple things on it. Like You're getting into the territory where you could run Plex on a Pi 4 pretty easily, and Pi Hole, say, and uh, maybe a Samba server, and you're pretty much going to be all right as long as you haven't got loads of people using the Plex server. Um, or, or some other less proprietary or not proprietary media server. I know I can see you twitching or feel you twitching, failing at the thought of Plex. There is nothing wrong with Libra, Lek, and Cody. It's a very, very capable mm. system. Yeah. Well, let's say that then. Just pretend I didn't say Plex. All right, then. I think there's another side to it that, um, I mean, for example, I was, I've got a, a thing that I was porting from, uh, it ran in a VM. 
um, and I was porting it to run on an old Raspberry Pi. And now I don't have to worry about that with Raspberry Pi 4. I can basically turn what was a desktop app or a, a command line tool that was built for x86 and, and run it on a on a relatively high-powered IoT platform without having to worry about optimizing it and rewriting everything in C. And that's really good. That opens up all kinds of possibilities. And I also really wonder how they've done it. I mean, I remember when um, Ben Everard and I spoke to Eben Upton, I think it was before the Raspberry Pi 2, um, and we asked him about new versions, and he said, categorically, we can't increase the RAM and we can't increase the CPU because it's just impossible to build the silicon on top of the connections that we've already got, especially for the RAM. And I believed him. And he did actually get in touch later and say with the release of the Raspberry Pi 2, he, he didn't lie. You know, we've been able to tweak this and that. But with the Raspberry Pi 4 now, they've really been able to, I presume, really innovate on the silicon and because people are always going to need more cycles. And they're doing a great job still, I think, because it's still going the right way. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. The Patreon has ticked up a little bit over the last month. So thank you very much. Maybe that's because it's Christmas and people are feeling generous. Um, if you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And uh, if you support us for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So go and check that out. Uh, if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. This episode is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with an end-to-end video processing and delivery platform as their standalone product called Streamflow. They sponsor a bunch of great open-source projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, Gentoo, and Funtu. And one of their standout clients is the European Space Agency, who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all around the world. They're a real innovation leader. They were the first CDN to implement a lot of new features like HTTP2 and Broccoli compression. And they don't outsource anything. Everything's developed and managed by their own team, including their own DDoS protection. And they can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine through their optimizations. All their servers are running Debian, and the vast majority of them are physical machines with an overall network capacity of more than 14 terabits per second. And they've got 35 points of presence in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with daily peaks regularly exceeding 5 terabits per second. They've got great 24-7 live support and flexible pricing with both great value monthly plans and pay-to-go options. You can get a 14-day free trial with no credit card needed, and if you do stick with them after that, you can get a 40% bonus if you mention late-night Linux to sales or tech support. So, for example, if you topped up by $1,000, you get $400 on top of that. I hosted the MP3 for an episode of the JRS podcast on CDN77, and it was really easy to set up and link to it, and I had no complaints about the speed from anyone. So go to cdn77.com and start delivering your content. So I'm moving into the proper summer months, and uh, it gets a little bit quiet, and my day job gets a bit hard scratching around for news. But uh, in July, Fuchsia got a website. Uh, Fuchsia, of course, is Google's other bet when it comes to an operating system. Maybe it's just for mobile. Maybe it's something more. Maybe it's going to replace Linux generally on servers. Who knows what's going to happen with it? But um, we've got more details of Fuchsia anyway. So that is definitely one to watch over the next year. I don't think we're going to see major developments with it but i think you've got to keep an eye on it because this is the the creeper that's going to come along and um 
certainly on mobile and maybe more eat Linux's breakfast, I think. I think you said it certainly made a good point that no one's really thinking of the next Linux. Um, Linux kind of came about because of all those happy accidents. Um, and there isn't the opportunity perhaps within the project itself to completely re-engineer another product based on what you've learned from the Linux kernel, um, which other companies have and can take advantage of. Yeah, and it's going to be that open source that Google likes to do, mm. I suspect, chuck it over the wall, permissively licensed, that sort of thing. So we're not going to have all the GPL goodness and open development that we have with Linux. But I think it is inevitable. I don't think Linux is going to go away, but I think Linux could end up like the old Unix systems in a way. I mean, there are still some ancient Unix systems in production, but anything new is going to be Linux-based these days. But maybe not for long. We'll see. Well, it's just the sheer breadth of people involved in actually getting a Linux distro out. Like, the amount of patches that come in, and no company can replicate that. And who is going to contribute to a thing that Google develops like that? Anything that you contribute to that is just going into a, a black hole, essentially, and you're 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 not getting the same feedback, the same community and all that. And that's where I think Linux wins hands down because just the sheer effort of work that goes in is, um, is pretty staggering. And it's not all about just mobile phones and crappy Chromebooks. <laughs> Excellent Chromebooks, actually. I'm quite pleased with mine. Uh, I know you wouldn't touch one, but I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. All right, moving on into August. And I couldn't not mention XFCE 4.14. Huge release. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> I'm still shocked. I just, the amount of features, I just, I had to lie down. GTK 3, it's, uh, you know, it's proper modern now. Just in time for GTK 4 next year. But um, yeah, honorable mention for that anyway. Um, and then also XFAT in the Linux kernel. Microsoft allowing XFAT to finally be free to some extent. Yes, another sign of Glasnost or another cynical marketing campaign by Microsoft? <laughs> <laughs> the second one. <laughs> no, Microsoft have changed. They've, uh, they've realized the power of open source. Now, I think it's, um, it's them trying to buy goodwill in our community because it always kept coming back to that, oh, XFAT patents, oh, the, the charging people for Android phones and everything. Whereas now that is an argument that you can't really use anymore for current Microsoft. You can still use it for the historical Microsoft or whatever. But um, Historical as in what, all of four months ago, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, wow, they've changed, man. We, we'll see. It, it seems to me... And I keep saying this, that they've realized that's where the money is. And so they're going to keep going with open source and Linux. And ultimately, we're all going to benefit. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think the the man in the street Linux user is going to benefit. Um, but yeah, if we scratch beneath the surface, yes, there are... Uh, money reasons for doing this but i think for the majority of um you know bog standard desktop users this has got to be good news so get it while it's good yeah exactly moving into september then and there was one story that dominated and that was stallman finally all the shit that he had said caught up with him and um it seems there were enough people who were new to free software who looked at some of the 
quite frankly, fucking appalling things that he said over the years. And it all came to a head with the Epstein thing and some comments that he'd made that are sort of related to that whole situation. And some people said that he'd been misquoted and whatever, but it doesn't matter. Just look through his archives. It's still there on his website, him saying that, um, you know, it's it's okay as long as kids are interested, you know, as long as they consent to it, just not understanding basic fucking principles of uh, children not being able to consent and stuff. Just... It, well, not only that, just some of the other stupid shit that he said. And I think that we're just better off without him on the scene, quite frankly. We haven't heard anything really since. So he, he resigned from the FSF and from MIT, but refused or, well, just didn't resign from GNU. And there were some GNU developers who were not very happy with that. And I, I just think we're better off without him. I'd have to agree, yeah, for sure. You can't defend the indefensible, so... Yeah, and just because you do some good things doesn't mean that you are above decency and, and you know, completely infallible. And stick to your fucking subject... Uh, yeah, stay in your lane, as it were. Yeah, yeah. thank <laughs> you. I have the flu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about free software and privacy and stuff don't talk about politics and that because you're just going to get in trouble hang on isn't that what we do on every episode of this? <laughs> yeah, no except us <laughs> yeah i'm sure that anyone who thinks brexit's a good idea or supports the tories has stopped listening a long time ago oh shame we'll miss them <laughs> and there was me thinking i was going to start a podcast called libertarian linux <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, you do not want to do that. Come on, let's do it. <laughs> Gun control. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get into that. So in October, Ubuntu 19.10 was released. We talked about that earlier. But that was your last release at Canonical. You have left the building, Will. And we spent a whole episode talking about it, so we don't have to rehash it too much. That's right. Sad to leave the team. I, I've been there for five and a half years, I think. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I really saw the, the team as, as my friends and people like Popey and Wimpy were my friends there and Graham and, uh, you know, lots of people that I worked with for a long time, um, that I, well, continue to, to miss working with every day. Um, but yeah, the time was right and, um, I'm, I'm happy to be working on new things now. Yeah, go back and listen to the episode we did about it if you want more details on that. So in November then, the big story was Google giving Chromebooks an extra year of support, at least for me, because it finally made me pull the trigger on buying the Chromebook, because I knew I'd get a couple of years out of it. And we've seen quite a lot over this year of Google taking Chromebooks more seriously and more convergence with Android. And as I said, when I talked about that Chromebook on the show, it is by far the most popular or the most widely used Linux desktop, which is what it is. It's got a Linux kernel. It's a desktop. It's a fucking Linux desktop, despite all the people who I trolled quite successfully uh, on that episode. It seems like the three of you don't really care very much about Chrome OS, though. <laughs> I kind of do, but I worry, you know, I can still turn on my Amiga and it works, even though <laughs> <laughs> Commodore no longer supports it. 
And, you know, I worry about the state of the future when we all have to be grateful to Google for adding another whole year support to <laughs> yeah. one of its products. Is ChromeOSDead.com? <laughs> <laughs> Seems very unlikely. I don't get the whole reason for a Chromebook. If you're not into the whole give your whole life to Google and let them know wherever you are and when your next bowel movement is. <laughs> if you're not into that and you buy yourself a um, Pinebrook Pro, you've got a laptop, a proper full laptop for in and around 200 euros, maybe with tax and delivery, etc. And then you've got a proper machine and you don't have to depend on a cloud-based behemoth that's trying to market the fuck out of every single bit of you. Um, so... No, I'm not really into Chromebooks. <laughs> Fair enough. So in December, Canonical announced Ubuntu Pro for AWS. Um, we talked about that fairly recently, so we don't need to talk too much about it now, but I think that is massively significant in terms of Canonical nearing the IPO. And I think, Will, you should have hung around a little bit longer. You could have probably cashed in. I don't know what the deal is over there, but um, I think it's coming pretty soon, this IPO. It'll probably be in pounds sterling, so, you know, worth nothing. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, and finally then, uh, a bit of news that has happened since we last did an episode, and that is that Microsoft Teams is now available on Linux. This is an Electron app, and they say it is the first Office application available on Linux. This is also huge. I don't want to talk too much about Microsoft, but, you know, WSL... And now this, it, it shows that they do care about Linux. They care about getting Linux users to use their services. And I strongly suspect that you'll be able to use Word and Excel and stuff and probably Outlook by this time next year on Linux. Hilarious revelation is the fact that I actually had to use Microsoft Teams about two weeks ago from installed from a snap and it worked perfect, and I was able to talk to everybody, blah, 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 and I was able to get rid of it afterwards, no problem. <laughs> so you're the only one of us who's actually used this. <laughs> yeah, so uh, ironic there. But uh, <laughs> I think I think the more prevalent factor is not the fact that how much Microsoft loves Linux, it's how the fact that Linux is so important that they have to actually provide their software for it. There you go. Ha-ha, think of that one. <laughs> I'm all upbeat now. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a nice upbeat thing to end on that uh, we've won. I think once you get all of Office natively, well, okay, Electron, whatever, but available for Linux without ugly hacks, well, Electron. But anyway, <laughs> once we get that, that we've fucking won, haven't we? Well, apart from the lack of users, yes. <laughs> well, the users will come. The users will come. And once we get Adobe, I think if we had all of the Office Suite and then all of the Adobe stuff, that would be, uh, well, that, that's the time to have a proper party, I think. But I don't think we'll see that next year. Who knows? But, um, yeah, that'll do it then for this one. Next time we will be doing our predictions, we'll be looking back at our previous predictions and I've uh, had a sneaky look at it, and I'm looking pretty good, I reckon. Pretty confident going into it. Yeah, me too. Totally. That whole AWS thing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway, so um, that's it for this decade. I can't believe it. We'll be back in 2020. Although, actually, it's not this, a new decade because it went from <laughs> 1 BC <laughs> to 1 AD. So the, yeah, whatever. Shut up, pedants. It's a fucking new decade. 
so until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.